0: Chapter Twenty Two of the Wrecker. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dion Gines, Salt Lake City, Utah. The Wrecker by Robert Louis Stevenson. Chapter Twenty Two, Part One. The Remittance Man. Singleton Carthew, the father of Norris, was heavily built and feebly vitalized. "'sensitive as a musician, dull as a sheep, and conscientious as a dog. "'He took his position with seriousness, even with pomp. "'The long rooms, the silent servants, seemed in his eyes like the observances of some religion, "'of which he was the mortal god. "'He had the stupid man's intolerance of stupidity in others, "'the vain man's exquisite alarm, lest it should be detected in himself.' and on both sides norris irritated and offended him he thought his son a fool and he suspected that his son returned the compliment with interest the history of their relation was simple they met seldom they quarrelled often to his mother a fiery pungent practical woman already disappointed in her husband and her elder son norris was only a fresh disappointment yet the lad's fault were no great matter HE WAS DIFFIDENT, PLACABLE, PASSIVE, UNAMBITIOUS, UNENTERPRISING. LIFE DID NOT MUCH ATTRACT HIM. HE WATCHED IT LIKE A CURIOUS AND DULL EXHIBITION, NOT MUCH AMUSED, AND NOT TEMPTED IN THE LEAST TO TAKE A PART. HE BEHELD HIS FATHER PONDEROUSLY GRINDING SAND, HIS MOTHER fireily BREAKING BUTTERFLIES, HIS BROTHER LABOURING AT THE PLEASURES OF THE HABUCK WITH THE ARDOR OF A SOLDIER IN A DOUBTFUL BATTLE and the vital skeptic looked on wondering. They were careful and troubled about many things. For him there seemed not even one thing needful. He was born disenchanted. The world's promises awoke no echo in his bosom. The world's activities and the world's distinctions seemed to him wholly without a base in fact. He liked the open air, he liked comradeship, it mattered not with whom, his comrades were only a remedy for solitude, and he had a taste for painted art. An array of fine pictures looked upon his childhood, and from these roods of jeweled canvas he received an indelible impression. The gallery at Stalbridge betokened generations of picture-lovers. Norris was perhaps the first of his race to hold the pencil. The taste was genuine. It grew and strengthened with his growth, and yet he suffered it to be suppressed with scarce a struggle. Time came for him to go to Oxford, and he resisted faintly. He was stupid, he said. It was no good to put him through the mill. He wished to be a painter. The words fell on his father like a thunderbolt, and Norris made haste to give way. It didn't really matter, don't you know, said he, and it seemed an awful shame to vex the old boy. To Oxford he went obediently hopelessly and at oxford became the hero of a certain circle he was active and adroit when he was in the humour he excelled in many sports and his singular melancholy detachment gave him a place apart he set a fashion in his clique envious undergraduates sought to parody his unaffected lack of zeal and fear it was a kind of new byronism more composed and dignified nothing really mattered Among other things, this formula embraced the Dons, and, though he always meant to be civil, the effect on the college authorities was one of startling rudeness. His indifference cut like insolence, and in some outbreak of his constitutional levity, the complement of his melancholy, he was sent down in the middle of the second year. The event was new in the annals of the Carthews, and Singleton was prepared to make the most of it, it had been long his practice to prophesy for his second son a career of ruin and disgrace there is an advantage in this artless parental habit doubtless the father is interested in his son but doubtless also the prophet grows to be interested in his prophecies if the one goes wrong the others come true old carthew drew from this source esoteric consolations he dwelt at length on his own foresight He produced variations hitherto unheard from the old theme, I told you so, coupled his son's name with the gallows and the hulks, and spoke of his small handful of college debts, as though he must raise money on a mortgage to discharge them. I don't think that is fair, sir, said Norris. I lived at college exactly as you told me. I am sorry I was sent down, and you have a perfect right to blame me for that but you have no right to pitch into me about these debts the effect upon a stupid man not unjustly incensed need scarcely be described for a while singleton raved i'll tell you what father said norris at last i don't think this is going to do i think you had better let me take to painting it's the only thing i take a spark of interest in i shall never be steady as long as i'm at anything else when you stand here sir to the neck in disgrace said the father i should have hoped you would have had more good taste than to repeat this levity the hint was taken the levity was never more obtruded on the father's notice and norris was inexorably launched upon a backward voyage he went abroad to study foreign languages which he learned at a very expensive rate and a fresh crop of debt soon fell to be paid with similar lamentations which were in this case perfectly justified and to which norris paid no regard he had been unfairly treated over the oxford affair and with a spice of malice very surprising in one so placable and an obstinacy remarkable in one so weak refused from that day forward to exercise the least captaincy on his expenses he wasted what he would he allowed his servants to despoil him at their pleasure He sowed insolvency, and when the crop was ripe, notified his father with exasperating calm. His own capital was put in his hands. He was planted in the diplomatic service, and told he must depend upon himself. He did so till he was twenty-five, by which time he had spent his money, laid in a handsome choice of debts, and acquired, like so many other melancholic and uninterested persons, a habit of gambling. An Austrian colonel, the same who afterwards hanged himself at Monte Carlo, gave him a lesson which lasted two and twenty hours, and left him wrecked and helpless. Old Singleton once more repurchased the honor of his name, this time at a fancy figure, and Norris was set off afloat again on stern conditions. An allowance of three hundred pounds in the year was to be paid to him quarterly by a lawyer in Sydney, New South Wales. He was not to write should he fail on any quarter-day to be in sydney he was to be held for dead and the allowance tacitly withdrawn should he return to europe an advertisement publicly disowning him was to appear in every paper of repute it was one of his most annoying features as a son that he was always polite always just and in whatever whirlwind of domestic anger always calm he expected trouble when trouble came he was unmoved he might have said with singleton i told you so he was content with thinking just as i expected on the fall of these last thunderbolts he bore himself like a person only distantly interested in the event pocketed the money and the reproaches obeyed orders punctually took ship and came to sydney some men are still lads at twenty-five and so it was with norris Eighteen days after he landed his quarter's allowance was all gone, and with the light-hearted hopefulness of strangers in what is called a new country, he began to besiege offices and apply for all manner of incongruous situations. Everywhere, and last of all from his lodgings, he was bowed out, and found himself reduced, in a very elegant suit of summer tweeds, to herd and camp with the degraded outcasts of the city." In this strait he had recourse to the lawyer who paid him his allowance. "'Try to remember that my time is valuable, Mr. Carthew,' said the lawyer. "'It is quite unnecessary you should enlarge on the peculiar position in which you stand. Remittance men, as we call them here, are not so rare in my experience, and in such cases I act upon a system. I make you a present of a sovereign. Here it is. Every day you choose to call, my clerk will advance you a shilling.' ON SATURDAY, SINCE MY OFFICE IS CLOSED ON SUNDAY, HE WILL ADVANCE YOU A HALF CROWN. MY CONDITIONS ARE THESE, THAT YOU DO NOT COME TO ME, BUT TO MY CLERK, THAT YOU DO NOT COME HERE, THE WORSE OF LIQUOR, AND YOU GO AWAY THE MOMENT YOU ARE PAID, AND HAVE SIGNED A receipt. I WISH YOU A GOOD MORNING. I HAVE TO THANK YOU, I SUPPOSE, SAID Carthew. MY POSITION IS SO WRETCHED THAT I CANNOT EVEN REFUSE THIS STARVATION ALLOWANCE starvation said the lawyer smiling no man will starve here on this shilling a day i had on my hands another young gentleman who remained continuously intoxicated for six years on the same allowance and he once more busied himself with his papers in the time that followed the image of the smiling lawyer haunted carthew's memory that three minutes talk was all the education i ever had worth talking of says he it was all life in a nutshell confound it i thought have i got to the point of envying that ancient fossil every morning for the next two or three weeks the stroke of ten found norris unkempt and haggard at the lawyer's door the long day the longer night he spent in the domain now on a bench now on the grass under a norfolk island pine the companion of perhaps the lowest class on earth the larrikins of sydney morning after morning the dawn behind the lighthouse recalled him from slumber and he would stand and gaze upon the changing east the fading lenses the smokeless city and the many-armed and many-masted harbour growing slowly clear under his eyes his bedfellows so to call them were less active they lay sprawled upon the grass and benches the dingy men the frowsy women prolonging their late repose and carthew wandered among the sleeping bodies alone and cursed the incurable stupidity of his behaviour day brought a new society of nursery maids and children and fresh-dressed and i am sorry to say tight-laced maidens and gay people in rich traps upon the skirts of which carthew and the other blackguards his own bitter phrase skulked and chewed grass and looked on day passed the light died the green and leafy precinct sparkled with lamps or lay in shadow and the round of the night began again. The loitering women, the lurking men, the sudden outburst of screams, the sound of flying feet. You mayn't believe it, says Carthew, but I got to that pitch when I didn't care a hang. I have been wakened out of my sleep to hear a woman screaming, and I have only turned upon my other side. Yes, it's a queer place, where the dowagers and the kids walk all day, and at night you can hear people bawling for help, as if it was the forest of Bondi, with the lights of a great town all around, and parties spinning through in cabs from government-house, and dinner with my lord. It was Norris's diversion, having none other, to scrape acquaintance here how and with whom he could. Many a long dull talk he held upon the benches or the grass, many a strange way he came to know, many strange things he heard, and saw some that were abominable, it was to be one of these last that he owed his deliverance from the domain. For some time the rain had been merciless. One night after another he had been obliged to squander fourpence on a bed and reduce his board to the remaining eight pence, and he sat one morning near the Macquarie Street entrance, hungry, for he had gone without breakfast, and wet, as he had already been for several days, when the cries of an animal in distress attracted his attention some fifty yards away in the extreme angle of the grass a party of the chronically unemployed had got hold of a dog whom they were torturing in a manner not to be described the heart of norris which had grown indifferent to the cries of human anger or distress woke at the appeal of the dumb creature he ran amongst the larrikins scattering them rescued the dog and stood at bay they were six in number shambling gallows birds but for once the proverb was right. Cruelty was coupled with cowardice, and the wretches cursed him and made off. It chanced that this act of prowess had not passed unwitnessed. On a bench nearby there was seated a shopkeeper's assistant out of employ, a diminutive, cheerful, red-headed creature by the name of Hemstead. He was the last man to have interfered himself, for his discretion more than equalled his valor but he made haste to congratulate Carthew and to warn him he might not always be so fortunate. "'There a dangerous lot of people about this park. My word, it doesn't do to ply with them,' he observed, in that ricey Australian English, which, as it has received the imperture of Mr. Froude, we should all make haste to imitate. "'Why, I'm one of that lot myself,' returned Carthew.' Hempstead laughed and remarked that he knew a gentleman when he saw one for all that i am simply one of the unemployed said carthew seating himself beside his new acquaintance as he had sat since this experience began beside so many dozen others i'm out of a place myself said hemstead you beat me all the way and back said carthew my trouble is that i have never been in one i suppose you've no tried asked hemstead I know how to spend money, replied Carthew, and I really do know something of horses and something of the sea, but the unions had me off. If it weren't for them, I might have had a dozen berths. My word, cried the sympathetic listener. Ever tried the mounted police, he inquired. I did, and was bowled out, was the reply. Couldn't pass the doctors. Well, what do you think of the railways, then? asked Hemstead. "'What do you think of them, if you come to that?' asked Carthew. "'Oh, I don't think of them. I don't go in for manual labor,' said the little man proudly. "'But if a man don't mind, he's pretty sure of getting a job there.' "'By George, you tell me where to go,' cried Carthew, rising. The heavy rains continued. The country was already overrun with floods. The railway system daily required more hands. Daily the superintendent advertised but the unemployed preferred the resources of charity and rapine, and a navvy, even an amateur navvy, commanded money in the market. The same night, after a tedious journey and a change of trains to pass a landslip, Norris found himself in a muddy cutting behind South Clifton, attacking his first shift of manual labor. For weeks the rain scarce relented. The whole front of the mountain slipped seaward from above, Avalanches of clay, rock, and uprooted forest spewed over the cliffs and fell upon the beach or in the breakers. Houses were carried bodily away and smashed like nuts. Others were menaced and deserted, the door locked, the chimney cold, the dwellers fled elsewhere for safety. Night and day the fire blazed in the encampment. Night and day hot coffee was served to the overdriven toilers in the shift. Night and day the engineer of the section made his rounds with words of encouragement, hardy and rough and well-suited to his men. Night and day, too, the telegraph clicked with disastrous news and anxious inquiry. Along the terraced line of rail, rare trains came creeping and signaling, and paused at the threatened corner, like living things conscious of peril. The commandant of the post would hastily review his labors, make, with a dry throat, the signal to advance and the whole squad lined the way and look on in a choking silence or burst into a brief cheer as the train cleared the point of danger and shot on perhaps through the thin sunshine between squalls perhaps with blinking lamps into the gathering rainy twilight one such scene carthew will remember till he dies it blew great guns from the seaward a huge surf bombarded five hundred feet below him the steep mountain's foot close in was a vessel in distress firing shots from a fowling piece if any help might come so he saw and heard her the moment before the train appeared and paused throwing up a babylonian tower of smoke into the rain and oppressing men's hearts with the scream of her whistle the engineer was there himself he paled as he made the signal the engine came at a foot's pace but the whole bulk of mountain shook and seemed to nod seaward and the watching navies instinctively clutched at shrubs and trees. Vain precautions, vain as the shots from the poor sailors. Once again fear was disappointed, the train passed unscathed, and Norris, drawing a long breath, remembered the laboring ship and glanced below. She was gone. So the days and the nights passed, Homeric labor in Homeric circumstance. Carthew was sick with sleeplessness and coffee. His hands, softened by the wet, were cut to ribbons, yet he enjoyed a peace of mind and health of body hitherto unknown, plenty of open air, plenty of physical exertion, a continual instancy of toil. Here was what had been hitherto lacking in that misdirected life, and the true cure of vital skepticism. To get the train through, there was the recurrent problem. No time remained to ask if it were necessary carthew the idler the spendthrift the drifting dilettante was soon remarked praised and advanced the engineer swore by him and pointed him out for an example i've a new chum up here norris overheard him saying a young swell he's worth any two in the squad the words fell on the ears of the discarded son like music and from that moment he not only found an interest he took pride in his (laughs) plebeian tasks The press of work was still at his highest when quarter-day approached. Norris was now raised to a position of some trust. At his discretion, trains were stopped or forwarded at the dangerous cornice near North Clifton, and he found in this responsibility both terror and delight. The thought of the twenty-five pounds that would soon await him at the lawyers, and of his own obligation to be present every quarter-day in Sydney, filled him for a little with divided counsels then he made up his mind walked in a slack moment to the inn at clifton ordered a sheet of paper and a bottle of beer and wrote explaining that he held a good appointment which he would lose if he came to sydney and asking the lawyer to accept this letter as an evidence of his presence in the colony and retain the money till next quarter-day the answer came in course of post and was not merely favourable but cordial although what you propose is contrary to the terms of my instructions it ran i willingly accept the responsibility of granting your request i should say i am agreeably disappointed in your behaviour my experience has not led me to found much expectations on gentlemen in your position the reins abated and the temporary labour was discharged not norris to whom the engineer clung as if to found money not norris who found himself a ganger on the line in the regular staff of navies his camp was pitched in a gray wilderness of rock and forest far from any house as he sat with his mates about the evening fire the trains passing on the track were their next and indeed their only neighbors except the wild things of the wood lovely weather light and monotonous employment long hours of somnolent camp fire talk long sleepless nights when he reviewed his foolish and fruitless career as he rose and walked in the moonlit forest an occasional paper of which he would read all, the advertisements with as much relish as the text. Such was the tenor of an existence which soon began to weary and harass him. He lacked and regretted the fatigue, the furious hurry, the suspense, the fires, the midnight coffee, the rude and mud-bespattered poetry of the first toilful weeks. In the quietness of his new surroundings, a voice summoned him from this exorbital part of life and about the middle of October he threw up his situation and bade farewell to the camp of tents and the shoulder of Bald Mountain. Clad in his rough clothes, with a bundle on his shoulder and his accumulated wages in his pocket, he entered Sydney for the second time, and walked with pleasure and some bewilderment in the cheerful streets, like a man landed from a voyage. The sight of the people led him on. He forgot his necessary errands, he forgot to eat, he wandered in moving multitudes like a stick upon a river. Last he came to the Domain and strolled there, and remembered his shame and sufferings, and looked with poignant curiosity at his successors. Hemstead, not much shabbier and no less cheerful than before, he recognized and addressed like an old family friend. "'That was a good turn you did me,' said he. "'That railway was the making of me. I hope you've had luck yourself.' my word no replied the little man i just sit here and read the dead bird it's the depression in tried you see there's no positions goin' that a man like me would care to look at and he showed norris his certificates and written characters one from a grocer in woolumooloo one from an ironmonger and a third from a billiard saloon yes he said i tried being a billiard marker it's no account These light hours are no use for a man's health. I won't be no man's slave, he added firmly. On the principle that he who is too proud to be a slave is usually not too modest to become a pensioner, Carthew gave him half a sovereign, and departed, being suddenly struck with hunger, in the direction of the Paris house. When he came to that quarter of the city, the barristers were trotting in the streets in wig and gown, and he stood to observe them with his bundle on his shoulder and his mind full of curious recollections of the past by george cried a voice it's mr carthew and turning about he found himself face to face with a handsome sunburnt youth somewhat fatted arrayed in the finest of fine raiment and sporting about a sovereign's worth of flowers in his buttonhole norris had met him during his first days in sydney at a farewell supper had even escorted him on board a schooner full of cockroaches and black-boy sailors, in which he was bound for six months among the islands, and had kept him ever since in entertained remembrance. Tom Haddon, known to the bulk of Sydney folk as Tommy, was heir to a considerable property, which a prophetic father had placed in the hands of rigorous trustees. The income supported Mr. Haddon in splendor for about three months out of twelve, the rest of the year he passed in retreat among the islands he was now about a week returned from his eclipse pervading sydney in hansom cabs and airing the first bloom of six new suits of clothes and yet the unaffected creature hailed carthew in his working jeans with the damning bundle on his shoulder as he might have claimed acquaintance with the duke come and have a drink was his cheerful cry i'm just going to have lunch at the paris house returned carthew It's a long time since I've had a decent meal. Splendid scheme, said Haddon. I've only had breakfast half an hour ago, but we'll have a private room, and I'll manage to pick something. It'll brace me up. I was on an awful tear last night, and I've met no end of fellows this morning. To meet a fellow and to stand and share a drink were, with Tom, synonymous terms. End of Chapter 22 Part 1 Recording by Dion Johns, Salt Lake City, Utah.